unusual text before us tonight, Judges chapter number 20. If, you're, if you come to our adult Sunday school class, uh, we have been studying through the book of Judges for quite some time, and we are up to chapter 16 with the life of Samson. Judges was a dark time. Uh, God's people were in an endless cycle that lasted for 450 years. They would be right with God, and then they would backslide, uh, start worshiping the gods and goddesses of the Canaanites. God would bring them into captivity, uh, and sometimes that lasted seven years. Sometimes it would last for 20 or 40 years. Finally, they, they'd get tired of it. It's amazing how long we are willing to live in trouble and God's judgment just to get our own way. But uh, they would finally start crying out to God for mercy, and God would raise up an individual called a judge who was mostly a political leader, um, leading armies and, and defeating them, but bringing the people back to God. As long as that judge lived, the people generally stayed right with God, but as soon as the judge died, it's like they went right back to their old ways again, and it's that endless cycle. The last several chapters of Judges... Uh, talks about some of the, the very, very dark times that went on during the rule of the judges. And in chapters 19 and 20, uh, we're not going to go into all the background, but there, there were some uh, things that happened that caused a civil war to break out. And it was the tribe of Benjamin against all the other 11 tribes. And in this case, the tribe of Benjamin was in the wrong. They had a chance to do right and just turn over some men who had done some, some horrible crimes uh, and, and defiled the land. And the men of Benjamin uh, would not do so. And they, they rallied around family. They rallied around their own, even though they knew they were wrong. And a civil war broke out. And the, the book of Judges will sort of end with that civil war. We read a few verses as the armies are gathering together. Benjamin is outnumbered. The Bible says there were 26,000 men that drew sword. Um, their opponents, the rest of Israel, verse number 17, were numbered 400,000 men that drew sword. Uh, it was like 20 to 1. Uh, There's no way Benjamin was going to win that war, and they did not. They would finally be decimated down to there were only 400 men left in all of the tribe of Benjamin. But in the midst of this account, there is a very unique verse that the Holy Spirit chose to include in the Word of God. Remember, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. We can learn from all of it. There's no part that we ought to just speed read, no part that we ought to gloss over. So if God chose to include this in his word, we would be wise to step back and just look at it for a moment. In verse number 16, this is talking about the army that Benjamin was raising for this war. Among all this people, there were 700 chosen men, left-handed, everyone could sling stones at an hairbreadth and not miss. 700 chosen men. That, that phrase chosen men means that out of this whole army, these 700 men, they were the Navy SEALs. 
They were the green berets of the group. They were the army rangers of the group. These were the specialists. These, are, these were special forces. These guys, um, they stood out from everyone. And these 700 chosen men, God just decided to put a verse in the Bible about them. Now, don't, don't turn me off. I think there's some, some things that we can learn from them. Uh, the Bible says that all 700 of these men were left-handed. Left-handed. How many left-handed people do we have in here tonight? One, two, three, four, five. So we got five left-handed people uh, in this room. Uh, 90% of the world is right-handed. Nine out of 10 people. Lefties are a very small minority compared to all of that. Um, Left-handed people, um, they are controlled more by the right side of their brain than than right-handed people are. All you righties, you're controlled by the left side of your brain. When Trina was diagnosed with a tumor uh, and they went in to operate, the doctors warned us because the tumor is right here in the front uh, uh, left temporal lobe of her brain. They said, we cannot guarantee um, how this is going to affect her, but she may wake up and not have any use of her right hand and she may not be able to speak because that's all controlled from this part of the brain. Trina was right-handed and uh, she loved to talk to people. Uh, I just can only imagine how frustrating that would have been to her to lose that ability to communicate. Of course, the Lord had different plans on that. So us lefties, we're controlled though by the right side of our brain. You might say, we're the only ones in our right minds. Um, You take that for what you want. Statistically, studies have been done in the last five or six decades on this. Left-handed people, and this is not an insult to those of you who aren't so privileged to be a lefty. Left-handed people tend to be more creative. They are more analytical. They are more verbal. Uh, They have better language and communication skills. They tend to be more disciplined. And they they are very good at complex reasoning. You say, what are right-handed people good for? I have no idea. didn't bother to study that because uh, I'm a lefty. I don't need to know what you can do. Uh, Basically, what I know is left-handed people are better than everybody else. And five people are agreeing. Well, four people are agreeing with me. Uh, Did you know uh, that a huge percentage of Nobel Prize winners are left-handed? Just think about that for a moment. One of the most prestigious awards given for literature and science and a lot of other things, uh, they're left-handed. In baseball, a left-handed pitcher is highly prized in in Major League Baseball uh, just because there there are certain skills uh, that they uh, possess. Statistically, a left-handed baseball player, especially a batter, has a 29% higher batting average than his right-handed counterparts. All this goes to say we're better uh, and, and so forth. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's just kind of interesting how God is, has made us. And of course, I hope you realize that that's all tongue-in-cheek humor. Uh, God made us all unique and God made us all different. But when God chose to write about these 700 chosen men, like I said, the special forces of their day, God pointed out that these men were left-handed. Left-handed. He's got some more things to say about them that we're going to, if you think about it correctly, and I think biblically, 
we stand somewhat in awe of these individuals. And uh, so I, I want you to uh, just understand a couple of things about them. Um, the, these men were left-handed, and the Bible says that their weapon of choice was a sling, not a slingshot, but a sling, much the type uh, that David would have used against Goliath. Um, I have one. I don't know how to use it. Um, and so I, I'm not even going to try it out on you. This much I know that with the sling, there's a little loop you put around your index finger and uh, you put a stone uh, or a projectile in the little uh, leather pouch. And like I said, I, I don't know how to use this, so I'm just going to make a mess of the whole thing, I'm sure. Um, and uh, you sort of hold it like this. Uh, if you've ever seen a video uh, of somebody with one of these things, they actually spin their whole body around like somebody doing a shot put. Uh, uh, at least once, some of them will go around twice, and the whole time their entire body's spinning around. This is, I'm, I'm not going to spin this around, and I'm not going to throw it lest uh, I get a lawsuit. Uh, something like that. They're also swinging this above their head and they, they come around and they let go of the, just the one that's not connected to their finger. The other one stays there so that only one side of the sling uh, comes apart. And that's, that stone, which is generally what they use as their projectile, um, is unleashed. Um, these stones, when they're unleashed, um, they have the, the effect of a bullet. Um, a sling is accurate up to about a thousand feet. That's that's it's it's actually more than that. It's three hundred and sixty yards. They are accurate. Um, in ancient battlefields, those who that that were the slingers that would have been a title they would have given to them were actually more feared than archers. Because they could, uh, they could shoot their projectiles, if you will, from a greater distance. They could shoot with tremendous accuracy. What happened when David took one smooth stone and, and uh, fired that thing at Goliath? Where did it hit him? It hit him in the forehead. The Bible says it sunk into his forehead, and the result, yeah, it was fatal. Um, in those days, a lot of times, now we know that Goliath had brass armor, which would have been why David aimed for the forehead, the unprotected spot. The average soldier, because metal was harder to come by, wore leather armor. Even if the sling stone hit the soldier in the chest or in the abdomen area, it hit with such force that it often caused fatal injuries and they would die from internal damage even though it did not pierce the leather itself. Sort of like when somebody is wearing body armor and they get shot, uh, it may protect them from the bullet piercing their skin and so forth, but oftentimes it'll leave a massive bruise. Sometimes it breaks ribs and so forth. This little sling can, can do those things. I wanted to get a video here just to show you how dramatic they are. There are people that specialize in these today. Uh, in the Middle East where shepherding is common, um, uh, they still use these to get rid of uh, wolves and wild animals that would come after uh, their, their flocks out there. Uh, I wanted to show a video, but a lot of them, uh, these guys don't bother putting shirts on, and I didn't think that was so appropriate for, for church. But it is absolutely astounding, and it's almost terrifying what they can do with one of these things. So these left-handed men 
were all men that used a sling. That was their weapon. And remember, David chose five smooth stones. Didn't say round, just smooth. Today, uh, this, is a, this is a shape that's very often seen in a, in, uh, for a sling stone. Uh, and it's smooth so that nothing can catch in, inside the leather pouch. And it, it, it's um, ejected um, with, with such force about 60 miles an hour. Uh, is generally how the, the, the kind of force that comes out. And it's amazing. Um, um, a sling like this one um, and a stone like this at 50 yards can destroy a concrete block. That's what hit Goliath in the head. And we're not sure how far away they were. We know David ran toward him. So think about this. David is running. He's swinging this thing around his head. He's aiming for the forehead. Do you understand the skill that that took? David, David obviously knew what he was doing. And we understand God was there and God was guiding all of those things. But we have these 700 chosen men and the Bible tells us they're left-handed. Everyone could sling stones. Now, there's a couple things I want you to understand from this passage that, that, that uh, can challenge us, maybe encourage us a little bit. Number one, these left-handed warriors were overcomers. God pointed them out. 700 chosen men left-handed. Like I said, nine out of 10 people in the world are right-handed. Left-handed people are at disadvantages in some way just by nature. For example, when I went to first grade way back with Fred and Wilma Flintstone, um, it was the first year at Templeton Elementary School in Templeton, Pennsylvania, that they did not take a left-handed child and tie my arm to the desk and make me learn to write right-handed. That's what they did. I think that's child abuse. I think it's torture. I think they had to go to prison, but it's too late. Uh, that was the first year that they didn't do that. Um, they, no such thing as kindergarten back then, so I went to first grade at five years of age. When we went to second grade, that is where we learned to write cursive. My second grade teacher was named Mrs. Gold, uh, Gould, I'm sorry, G-O-U-L-D, a very nice lady. Um, I was the only left-handed child in the class, and because it was the first time that they'd allowed me to learn to write left-handed, she said when it came to cursive, I have never taught a left-handed student how to write. I remember coming in one morning and she had all of our names written in cursive uh, on the chalkboards around the classroom. And the rule was that we had to copy that and it had to be legible before we could go outside for recess. Guess who didn't have recess that day? The next day, she just gave up. She said, uh, she called me Tommy. She didn't call me pastor yet. Uh, she said, Tommy, I'm so sorry. She said, I honestly don't know how to help you. Just do the best you can. Um, and uh, I was a straight-A student except for penmanship. And even today, I, I don't have very good penmanship, and I, I work very hard at it. It was just a disadvantage. I was talking to a friend of mine. His name is Levi. I met him over at the, at the gym, and, and he noticed me writing something with my left hand. He said, hey, another southpaw. And so we were just sort of talking a little bit, and uh, he's saying it. He said, uh, I remember trying to learn how to tie my shoes said, all my siblings were right-handed, my parents were both right-handed, and they could not teach me how to tie my shoes. He said, and so uh, somewhere we were, there was another individual that was left-handed, 
and they showed me how they tied their shoes. He said, and that's all it took. And I learned how to tie my shoes. Simple things like that. Just by nature, a left-handed person um, doesn't come by things as easily as, as others. In some cultures, left-handed people were considered either blessed by the gods or cursed by the gods. I choose blessed. And, and uh, so if you were left-handed, you were maybe revered or you were an outcast that type of thing. They had weird ideas about that. And it just happens to be God made some of us left-handed, some right-handed, and none of that matters to God. Amen. Um, we are uniquely, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but left-handed people by nature had, had some struggles right-handed. Don't, for example, going into battle with a sword arm, most people are right-handed. And so they would learn and they'd be trained to fight uh, with their right arm. When I first started training with Sam, we would do things, different uh, exercises. He said, I want you to start uh, with your non-dominant hand. And then once you've done a, a, a set of those, I want you to go to your dominant hand. So I would always start with my right hand and he would correct me. He said, I said, your non-dominant hand. Sam, I'm left-handed. Oh, I know you keep telling me that. I keep forgetting uh, that type of thing. So we got these 700 chosen men. I, I'm, I'm not just trying to waste your time. There's, there's a point to be made here. Something, God put it there. And, and there's something for us to understand. For these 700 men to become chosen soldiers, standing out above everybody else, you understand they had to overcome just a natural, I hate to put it this way, disability, because a right-handed swordsman would have a hard time training a left-handed soldier. That would go with the sling as well. So there's just that by nature, they'd have that hardship. But there's another fact about ancient warfare that we need to consider, and it is historically accurate. When soldiers went out to battles, so let's say it's a right-handed soldier, and that soldier swings his sword, his opponent's going to come. This is the sword extended. The other arm is holding a shield or, 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 or something like that. Um, the other soldier, if he can't get the head, he's going to go for here, the sword arm, and this would be the hand that would get cut off in battle. This one's protected by a shield held close to the body, the left hand. It's the sword arm would be cut off because that's the one extended. That's the one put in harm's way in battle. Sometimes if uh, one army defeated another, sometimes they would kill all the enemy combatants, but other times they would just cut off their sword hand. So these left-handed men, either by just natural difficulties, trying to, to uh, function in a right-handed army, or maybe they suffered a, 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 a blow and lost their, their sword arm, or it was badly crippled, and they had to learn over again with their left hand. These were individuals that had to overcome some things to become good soldiers, the Bible says that we, we are to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible teaches us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The Bible teaches, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Um, we, we need to understand we are called to be soldiers of Jesus Christ. We are in a spiritual warfare. You do understand that. 
Uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness uh, in high places. And we are seeing that in our culture uh, greater and greater. I heard an, uh, a news story on WCBS radio out of New York City this morning as I drove in early and the sun was starting to come up. There was a school in Lebanon, Connecticut that's making national headlines. They now have an after-school Satan club. See if you can have a Bible club in that same school. That's the world in which we live. Now, we're not called to go out and beat people up. We're not called to, to go out and give people black eyes. We're called to stand, amen, and having done all to stand. That means that you and I are going to have to overcome some things. We're going to go through trials in life. We're going to go through heartaches and disappointments and setbacks. Just as there is a time to rejoice, there's a time to mourn. Just as there's a time to laugh, there is a time to weep. It's all a part of God's plan for our lives. These 700 men, either by nature or by injury, overcame that. And they didn't just trudge around in life living, if you will, a second-class existence. These these were men that rose to the top. They could have sat back and said, well, I'm at a disadvantage and things haven't been fair for me or things were hard for me and they could have come up with a thousand and one excuses, but these were men. I don't know how they found each other. I don't know how they trained together with each other, but 700 men in this one unit, God calls them chosen men, said we are not going to allow our hardships. We're not going to allow our disappointments. We're not going to allow our injuries or our trials to be a setback and excuse for us. We're going to serve. We're going to give it everything we got. They were overcomers. We got to get off this victim mentality and this, uh, you don't understand how hard I have it. These men had it hard no matter which way you look at it, but they did not let that be their excuse for failure. One of the greatest examples of an overcomer uh, in, in the entire Bible is Joseph. We spent how many weeks this, this earlier this year talking about him, the heart of a champion. Everything about Joseph was against him. If anyone humanly had a right to sit down and say, life has not been fair to me and God's not been fair to me and my family hasn't been fair to me, it could have been Joseph. But you don't find that in him at any rate. He didn't use the fact that his brothers had a bad testimony to say, it doesn't matter how I live, I might as well just join them. He said, I'm gonna stay right with God no matter what. It didn't matter that he had to serve in Potiphar's house as a slave, he said, I'm still going to be right with God. I'm still going to work hard. I, I'm not going to let this be my excuse for a bad attitude and a bad spirit and a bad testimony. And, and is there any human being in the Bible that is more respected than Joseph from Genesis 37 to 50? We may have our favorites in the Bible, but I don't know of anybody that even the unsaved world holds him up in admiration. You can whine about how unfair life is. I can whine about the same thing, but uh, uh, that isn't going to win any, any victories or any battles for us. At some point in, in time, we're going to have to understand that if God be for us, who can be against us? We're going to have to understand, no matter what, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. May I remind you, when Paul penned those divine words, he was in prison, and he's still rejoicing saying, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Uh, please understand, these men were number one, they were overcomers. They said, we will be victors rather than victims. 
We have to choose that for ourselves. Nobody can choose it for us. Probably 10 or, 10 or 11 years ago, Trina and I traveled to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There was, there was a group uh, based in San Diego called the Challenged Athletes Foundation. Um, they, they work with a lot of uh, Paralympian athletes. Uh, they, they do their best to provide equipment uh, that amputees might need. Uh, it could be a running blade. It could be a specially adapted uh, 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 cycle uh, of some type for them. Uh, and they, they do that. But they, they periodically, all around the country, uh, each year, they hold what they call a gait clinic, G-A-I-T. Gait is how you walk. And uh, uh, it was after my second amputation, I had taught myself how to run on a regular prosthesis. And uh, Trina and I talked about it and uh, thought it might be a good thing for me to go. I could maybe learn from, from some things. So we went there. We met at one of the stadiums along the Monongahela River in Pittsburgh, uh, the, the new stadium that the Steelers play in. Uh, didn't they beat the Packers today, Rob? Yes, they did. Just need to get that out there. Uh, uh, we, we could see the new stadium over there. We were at a college stadium. Uh, there were about 67 amputees that came that day. I met some incredible people. Uh, I met some young people that, that were missing three out of four limbs, both legs and an arm. Uh, I, I met some children uh, that, that were uh, born uh, with a, a birth defect and a, and, a, and a limb was amputated and so forth. Uh, I, I really met some amazing people. There were 67 of us. They had 150 physical therapists from all around the Pittsburgh area that donated their time that day. They divided us up into two groups. There were, if you will, the beginners, those who were new at this whole thing of walking uh, with a prosthesis and so forth, and those that maybe wanted a little more. And, and I went to that group because I really wanted to learn how to run better. And, and I was already walking without a limp, so that was my group. One of the last people to come in that day was an African-American lady named Vivian. Uh, they, they had already been talking about how the day was going to go, dividing things up, and, and we heard, if you will, a wail, W-A-I-L, we heard this cry. Uh, and we all turned and looked back to the turnstiles where uh, everybody came through to come out into the field, and, and here was this tall, thin African-American lady, and she had a couple of people with her, um, and she was crying, and she was, she was doing everything she can could not to go through that turnstile. She said, I don't want to be here. Please don't make me and, and so forth. And somehow they talked her into to coming in. Um, as she came closer to us, it became very obvious. Uh, Vivian was a right below the knee amputee, but Vivian had been through a terrible fire. The entire right side of her face had massive scars all the way down her, leg, her, her, her neck. Her left arm, she had a, like a, a sleeveless uh, shirt on, and you could see what, the scars uh, on her arm and even part of her hand, the scars. And you could see uh, 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 above her knee uh, also the scars. We later learned out that uh, she had been in a fire in her apartment, and she could not get out, the firefighters. Uh, they, they got in there and they got her out, but she was severely burned by the time they did so. She was in a burn unit uh, at one of the major hospitals in, in Pittsburgh for several months. Uh, horrible, horrible procedures that she had to go through. Uh, during that time, 
uh, the doctors determined that, that her right leg, the bottom of it, her foot and so forth had been so badly burned uh, that uh, it, it just could not be salvaged and so they amputated. Uh, otherwise, uh, she would uh, just be susceptible to all kinds of infections. So about two months prior to the event that I attended there, uh, she got her first prosthesis and she was in the early stages of learning how to walk. This is a lady who had lived a nightmare, just lived a nightmare. I didn't see much of Vivian uh, for most of the day because I was down at the other end of the football field doing our thing and she was there with the beginners. But at the end of all of the challenged athlete uh, get-togethers like this, uh, they bring all of the uh, amputees, they divided us into two teams and we're all mixed up regardless of skill level or level and type of amputation. And they put us in two lines and they had a little obstacle course set in front of us. They called it the Challenged Athlete uh, Olympics. And this is how we ended our day. And uh, it, it wasn't really a race or a contest. They just sort of put it like that. And it was stuff that, that most of you, are, our teenagers here, you would probably laugh at it. Uh, the first thing, uh, some of you that may have played football have run through the tires, uh, that type of thing. Uh, we had to walk through hula hoops that were laying on the ground. Uh, that type of thing. And it was all about being able to balance, lift, lift your good leg and balance on the prosthesis a uh, lot easier than it sounds and so forth. They had, a, they had like a two by eight laying flat and that was our balance beam. And we just, we had to walk across that without falling off. If you, if you fell off, you had to go back and start it again. And just very, very simple things like that. And it was, it was just, it was, it was a how to have a good time it was about camaraderie with, with other uh, uh, athletes and so forth. Those 150 physical therapists, they were d divided up with us um, and so forth. And they worked with us all day long, helping us learn the skills that we needed. Vivian had two that were assigned to her. And um, Vivian was in, in my particular group. And uh, I was about two-thirds of the way back. And she was about uh, two or three people behind me. And as we're, you know, we're cheering for everybody. We didn't care what team they were on. And uh, we, we were really having a good time. It was about 102 degrees and no shade. And we're all dying of, uh, of heat and all that kind of stuff. But behind me, I could hear Vivian crying. And the cries became more intense as our line moved up. Um, when you got done, you had to run the whole course. It would be about from here to the back wall. Um, and then you had to turn around and do the whole thing back again. And as soon as you got there, there was somebody that put a medal around your neck saying that you had completed uh, the Challenge Athlete Foundation's uh, 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 gate clinic that day. Uh, I, I've still got mine somewhere. But uh, as the line moved forward and we're getting closer and closer, Vivian's cries became louder and more intense. She was terrified. I have no idea how her day went up to that point. I wasn't, I wasn't with her. Um, she was crying. She had a physical therapist standing on each side, and they were trying to calm her and assure her, look, we're going to be with you. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fun. And uh, she, she wanted to walk away, and she said, I don't want to do this. Please don't make me do this. Tears just rolling down her face. Uh, and every one of us, our hearts were just breaking for her. I can't imagine what her life had been like and, and was and was going to continue to be. And uh, I, I, I ran my race and so forth and, and finished it. I had my medal. And then once we were done, we just all stood in the sidelines. And I was as far away from uh, our line of people as I am from that piano. 
And so I, I was standing there, um, and it was, it was Vivian's turn. And I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And they finally said, just, just try it. And so she began to make some very uh, awkward steps forward. She was still trying to figure out this walking on a prosthesis and so forth. And uh, I, I, I forget which obstacle. I think it was the, the two-by-eight board. Uh, she tried that, and uh, she, she lost her balance, and Vivian fell. And she fell hard, and she fell fast. It happened so quickly that the physical therapist on each side they, they couldn't get her, and I mean, she hit the ground hard. And of course, we're all watching. We'd all been cheering her on. We knew her name. We're trying to encourage her and so forth. And it, it was just like there was this collective gasp. There are 200 and some of us there, plus the workers from San Diego and so forth. And she's down and so forth. And then just somebody said, Vivian, it's okay. You can do this. Vivian, you can do this. And I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I saw one of the therapists that was assigned to her. It's happening directly across from me. I saw the therapist go down and grab a hold of her, her arm. It would have been her left arm, her good arm, to try to help her to feet. And all of a sudden, Vivian looked up. And the look she gave that therapist was fierce. It's the only word I can think of to describe it. And she smacked that lady's arm away. And she said, I will do this myself. And all of a sudden, that lady, it was awkward. It was difficult and possibly even painful, but we just watched her pulling herself up off of the ground and finding her way. And, 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 and uh, the tears had, had stopped flowing, but there was a new look in her face. Somewhere deep inside of her, she just said, I'm down, but I'm not gonna stay down. I'm out, but I'm not out for good. Somewhere on the inside, she said, I'm going to do this. And we all started cheering again. Uh, we were strangers. We never met each other before that day. And we're cheering and we're crying and we're clapping all at the exact same time. And Vivian fell several times on the way down. She fell several times in the way back. But let me tell you something. When she crossed that finish line and, and, and put the, they put that medal around her, her neck, uh, I have never been in a moment so exciting as it was to watch that lady. I think God let me see that to say you don't have to be a victim. Trials are going to come. Heartaches are going to come. Setbacks are going to come. But you got a God in heaven and that God is a good God and you can do all things through Christ. These 700 men were overcomers. And somewhere every one of us is going to have to decide to stop playing the game and stop playing victim and say, I'm going to live for God. I, 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 I'm sorry if your home life is not good, if your home life's like, life is like Joseph's, but you understand he lived above his home life. I'm sorry if bad things happened to you. I'm not minimizing that. Please, I would never, ever, ever do that any more than I'd want you to minimize anything that's happened to me. But, but, but look at Joseph with all the bad things that happened to him for the first 30 years of his life. He became a champion for God. These 700 men were overcomers. There's a second thing I want you to understand. Among all these people, there were 700 chosen men left-handed. Everyone could sling stones at an hairbreadth and not miss. They were not only overcomers, they were overachievers. They were overachievers. I, I did some research several weeks ago about this verse, and then I went and began researching about uh, uh, people that are called slingers, 
and these are called slings and sling stones and so forth. Um, it, it, is, it is absolutely amazing. It takes two years of six to eight hours a day practice to use one of these things and hit a dinner plate 60 feet away, like from here to the back wall. It takes two years of practice. Historically, in ancient times, a slinger was trained starting at the age of two the age of two, and they were trained specifically in that art, whether as a warrior in an army or as a shepherd, someone like that, because with a sling, you don't have to have a supply of arrows. You just have to have lots of stones laying at your feet to pick them up. You have, if you will, an unending supply of ammunition. It takes about two years. Stone from a sling travels at 60 miles an hour. Uh, it can do as much damage as a bullet. I mentioned a stone this size, stone this size can shatter a concrete block. Um, you understand that these men, uh, they didn't just pick up a, stone, a sling and start spinning it around and ta-da, I'm a slinger. Um, they they not, not only had to overcome a lot of hardships, whether by nature, they were just born left-handed and nobody could teach them uh, uh, and so forth and they had to learn on their own or they lost a hand in battle and they had to learn how to use it all over again. Uh, these men were overachievers, overachievers. My Bible says what thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Uh, I, I fear that since COVID, Christians, I've talked to pastors all over the country, Christians just got used to settling back and kind of coasting through and well, Jesus is coming soon. The fact that Jesus is coming soon means that we need to be uh, busier and working harder than we ever have before. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, every man that striveth for the masteries. Why is it if there's a paycheck involved, we're going to be the very best at it because we want to get paid. But when it comes to the things of God, it, it's like a take it or leave it mentality. It, it's time for us to get in or get out, get off or get on, get hot or get cold uh, and, and stop playing games with God. Um, it, it's time for us to serve God like it means business because it does. The only thing we're going to take to heaven is represented in those numbers right there. It's not going to be how big our bank account was. It's not going to be what kind of car we drove. It's did we make an eternal impact on the lives of other people? And we ought to give ourselves to that. We ought to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is a shame before Almighty God that our young people know all the ins and outs of stupid video games that do not matter. Some of them are harmful, but if you ask them the find a certain verse in the Bible without a Bible app, they have no idea where to even look. That ought not to be. It's a shame that if we're presented with the opportunity to share Christ, we'll back away because we don't know how to do it. Uh, we need to learn how to strive for the masteries. These were men that said, we're, we're at a disadvantage, but notice what the Bible says, they could sling stones at an hairbreadth, and notice this, and not miss. 100% accuracy. What it would have been like if David went out and faced Goliath and he'd never really used one of these before. His brothers and his dad said, you need to learn how to use the sling. And he went out now and then and, you know, whipped it around his head a little bit and said, that's kind of hard, I don't know. And all of a sudden he's facing a guy that's nine and a half feet tall. Um, 
That could have been a disastrous day for David, but you see, uh, David was a young man that uh, worked hard at this. We read the story and we don't, we don't understand the hours and hours and hours of practice that that boy put into learning how to use a sling. In the time we get serious about the things of God, in the time that we get dedicated to the house of God, I mentioned in Sunday school when Robin, Ann, and the family pulled into church this morning, Tommy is starting to figure things out. He's starting to ask a lot of questions. And uh, when he pulled in, he saw the building here. He said, that's God's home, isn't it? Because he heard them refer to it as the house of God. By the way, the church is called the house of God. Second, or First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the house of God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. Uh, he said, that's, that's God's home. Isn't that a good way to put it? That's God's home. Uh, that's, that's an important thing. Um, and, and we ought to take this seriously. And, and, and we ought to just say, I'm going to serve God with every fiber of my being. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is sharing a bit of his testimony here in the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. And he's talking about how after the resurrection, Jesus was seen by uh, uh, Peter and then the rest of the 12, about 500 people in verse 8. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and that, that's where he had his salvation experience. For I am, he says, the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul had a checkered past. Paul had consented to the death of Stephen. Uh, he was Saul at that time. He was breathing out threatening and slaughter against the disciples of Christ. And, and then he got saved. We don't think about this, but Saul of Tarsus and Jesus were probably the same age. They grew up in, in Israel at the same time. Undoubtedly, Saul of Tarsus um, had heard Jesus preach. He had seen him. He would have encountered him when, Je when Jesus was in Jerusalem in the temple. And there were miracles that were uh, performed there. He probably wasn't old enough to be on the Sanhedrin, but he was well respected by the Sanhedrin. Paul said, because of my past, he said, I'm not even meet to be called an apostle, verse 10, but by the grace of of God, I am what I am. Isn't that a great verse? Grace is God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. In other words, God didn't waste his grace on me. There's a lot of people, God talks to them and God has a plan for them. Uh, whether it's he wants them to be saved or he wants them to serve, he, he wants to bless but they don't listen to the voice of God. And, and if you will, that grace has been bestowed on them in vain. Paul said, that wasn't the case with me, but notice this, but I labored more abundantly than they all. So what's that mean? Paul said, I started from behind. I, I wasn't there when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration like Peter, James, and John. It wasn't in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't in the, uh, the, the upper room for the, the Last Supper. I, I wasn't there with the feeding of the 5,000. I wasn't there when he, when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. I, I wasn't there when they would ask him questions about things and so forth. I, I didn't get that privilege like the rest of them had. So when I got saved and God began to call me, I, I was behind so much. He said, 
but I labored more abundantly than they all. In other words, he was an overachiever. He had to study hard. He had to spend a lot of time with God. He had to spend a lot of time in prayer. He had to spend a lot of time in the scriptures. Uh, but the grace of God was with me. Of course, he didn't do it in his strength. He's yielding and trusting God for his strength and his grace in all of that. The 700 chosen men, they were overcomers. Something happened in their lives that they had to work and overcome that, but they were overachievers because they became so good at it, they could sling a stone at an hair's breadth and not miss. Boy, God granted some old-fashioned tenacity to say, I'm going to be the best Christian I can be. Why, why does God deserve less than your boss? We're quiet there, but why? The answer is he doesn't. He deserves more from all of us than anyone else because nobody's done for us what God did. Say, so, well, my boss signs my paycheck. You wouldn't have that job if it wasn't for God. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Let's just stop playing games with God and let's buckle down and say, I want to be the best Christian I can be. I want to be the best husband, the best wife, the best parent, the best teenager, the best Sunday school teacher that I can be by the grace of God. These 700 chosen men. Go back one more time. I have one more point, and I worked hard on this because I knew Brother Rob needed me to keep my outline in order. These men are to be admired. First of all, uh, they were overcomers. Number two, they were overachievers. Number three, they were overly perceptive. Notice that, that verse again. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all the way in Jeremiah. Let me get to Judges chapter number 20 one more time. Judges chapter 20, and that verse tells us very, very clearly, and now I'm in Joshua. It starts with the letter J. I'm getting there. Among all this people, there were 700 chosen men left-handed. Everyone could sling stones at an hair breadth and not miss. If it takes two years of training, six to eight hours a day, to hit a dinner plate at 60 feet, how much training does it take to hit a hair breath? That's plucking a hair out of someone's head and holding it up. And the Bible says they could hit it and not miss. I'm at the age where I can't see anything. I wear bifocals, but there are times if there's fine, fine print, I don't know why I do this. I'm, I'm taking my glasses off. I'm getting real close. Anybody with me on that? Are we going to have revival? Nobody wants to admit it. Uh, and you young people, laugh all you want. It will be you someday. And you're going to remember this sermon. Um, uh, when I was nine years old, my eyesight uh, went bad on me. And, and I've had bifocals since I was nine years of age. I don't know what it is to have good eyesight. Do you realize how visually perceptive, perceptive these 700 men were. Not only had they overcome some kind of either a, an injury or just a natural disability in the, in the grand scheme of things by being left-handed, uh, and they had to overcome that. Not only they had worked hard and, and, and overachieved and became so skillful at the use of this sling, um, they could see the slightest little thing, a hairbreadth, and they never missed they were overly perceptive. The Bible tells us where there is no vision, the people perish. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. 
Vision has a lot to do with our focus. What we see and how we see it. What we behold. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, Judge not that you be not judged. What a misunderstood and misused verse of the Bible. For with, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote? A mote is the tiny little speck that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is thine, in thine own eye. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. We have 20-20 vision when it comes to everybody else's issues. But we're blind concerning our own. And Jesus said that's not the way it's supposed to be. We need to, have, we need to have the right perception of where we are. See, the only person that I can make be right with God is me. And so this is the person I need to be most concerned about. And I, and I realize we, we, we interact with each other uh, in every phase of life and issues come along and we have to deal with them. But the Savior is saying, you need to be careful about that. You need to be careful about that. You're, you're, you're zeroing in on your brother's flaw and your brother's fault. And you got a beam hanging out of your own eye and you're not doing anything about that. And Jesus says in verse 5, thou hypocrite, thou hypocrite. Uh, that was one of the harshest words he ever used for anybody he dealt with, thou hypocrite. That's what he called the scribes and Pharisees repeatedly in Matthew chapter 23. These men had the right eyesight. They were perceptive. They saw things clearly. Turn, if you would please, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And look, if you would please, at verse number 35. Verse 35, say not ye there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. There's that vision again. Uh, well, someday, someday people will get saved. Someday it'll be time. No, he said, lift up your eyes and look right now. The fields are white already unto harvest. Someday I'm going to witness to my neighbor. Someday I'm going to witness to my friend. No, no, Jesus said it, it's time that you see the way that it is now and get your focus. We're too focused on the things that the world focuses on and we ought to be focusing on people getting saved. Amen? It's what it's about. Do you, do you understand? Uh, I think Brother McCullough made this statement last Sunday. Uh, most everything that we do we could do better in heaven. We could sing better in heaven. We could pray better in heaven because we're right there seeing the Savior. Uh, we, we could serve God better in heaven. The only thing we can't do in heaven is win people to Christ and share the gospel. I can't make anybody get saved, but I can sure tell them how to be saved. I, I can encourage them to be saved. And we need to get our vision focused on, on that which is important to God. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. And we'll be finished tonight. Revelation chapter 3. I believe at the beginning of 2024, I'm going to go back to a series that I preached a number of years ago in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation and spend some time there. 
But the last church that the Lord Jesus had a message to was a church in a place called Laodicea. And notice what he says to them in, in uh, verse number 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. They, he says, you're lukewarm. Thou art lukewarm. Yeah, we're okay. We're, we're not really that zealous about God. Coming to church isn't really, well, okay, we'll do it, but unless there's something else better going on. Um, I read my Bible some. Yeah, I, 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 yeah maybe I pray some. They're just, they're just lukewarm believers. But notice why they were like that. Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods. My wallet's full of Benjamins. I know people that I'm pretty sure every time special offerings announced, they pull their wallet out and whisper to Lincoln and Washington and, and, and Andrew Jackson, don't worry, fellas, I'll protect you. That's what the church of Laodicea, thou art rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor. And what's the next word, church? And blind and naked. They couldn't see what they really were. They couldn't see they were backslidden. They couldn't, they, they thought because maybe they had a nice building or maybe the offerings were good or maybe they had a good job. Look, God's blessing me. I'm fine like I am. And Jesus said, you don't even see what you're like. He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that which is pure, that which is lasting, that which is eternal that thou mayest be rich. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. That's righteousness, a godly life. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. It was a church. These weren't unsaved people. We know the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. He's talking to a church. And he said, you're completely blind as to what you are. These 700 chosen men, they were overly perceptive. They had outstanding vision. And we need to be that way. We need to be asking the Lord constantly, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Lord, Lord, open my understanding like you did the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that I understand truth, I understand the plan and the purpose of God in my life. Uh, we, we need to be what he was telling the church at Laodicea. Lord, open my eyes to myself. What do I really need? Where am I? Are you pleased with me? Am I living the life that you've called me to live? The 700 chosen men that God took one verse to tell us about, they ought to challenge and inspire us. They were overcomers. I want to be one of those. I want to be a Joseph. Maybe I'll never be like him in every way, but I want to overcome. They were overachievers. Let's do everything we can for God. Whatsoever thy hand find to do it, do it with thy might. And let's be overly perceptive. Let's see the way God wants us to see. Let's see all those people out there that need Jesus and help Help us to see that the time is shorter than it's ever been. Can we bow our heads for prayer tonight? Thank you for being here.